you're about to drop in on a lecture where the instructor is talking about Mark Twain and using searches instead of basic slots to design your voice user interface. So continuing in this example, we have all this list of email senders and we don't have anyone named Mark Twain. So we're getting a mismatch. We still need to find a result though. Right? Nonetheless, we need to find a match. If you've been in any Alexa Slack group or forum or chatted with anyone, you probably heard the phrase, dude, you gotta use fuzzy matching. But what exactly is fuzzy matching? One way to do fuzzy matching is what we call the Levenstein distance. This is also known as the minimum edit distance, and it represents the minimum number of changes you need to make to transform one string, one word or phrase, to another string, another word or phrase. This is used in search a lot, but it's also used in other situations like did you mean or spell check as well. So let me walk you through really quickly how the Levenstein distance works. You're usually not going to be implementing this from scratch, but I just want to show you conceptually so you understand uh, essentially what you're getting here. So let's compare Dwayne to, and Banian to Twain, these two names. We are looking at the minimum number of edits necessary, and we go character by character. So we change D to T, that's one edit. W and A remain the same, and then we change Y to I, that's two edits. N remains the same, and we chop off the E. That's one, two, three edits. If we compare Banian to Twain, B to T, add a W, remove an N, and then remove an A. That's one, two, three, four edits. So just like we can know conceptually, looking at it, we can also know mathematically that Dwayne is more similar to Twain than Banian. There's also phonetic algorithms. This is what people usually mean when they talk about fuzzy matching. These are algorithms that transform words into their approximate phonetic representations. There are a number out there that people create either because they have a specific use case, there's one here that is specifically for New Zealand names, or just because they go, eh, I think I can do a better job than that. That's how we have metaphone, double metaphone, and metaphone. I can do better than what's been done before. So we'll just look at one example really quickly to see how this works. We're going to look at Soundex. Soundex is probably the most common phonetic algorithm. What we do is we keep the first letter and we drop any of the vowels or H or W. So we end with, uh, we have DN for Dwayne and TN for Twain. Then we encode the consonants into numbers. And so what you'll notice is we're encoding consonants that generally sound alike to the same number. So D and T, right, these sound a lot alike. B, P, V, they sound a lot alike. So we have three, five for DN, three, five for TN. And then we collapse the encodings if we have duplicate numbers, unless for separated by vowel. A little confusing, but what we need to see here is that uh, Dwayne ends up at 3-5 and Twain ends up at 3-5. And what that tells us is that Dwayne and Twain are phonetically similar. Again, we're not looking to see if they're exactly the same. 
We just want to know if they're similar. And surely Dwayne and Twain are phonetically similar. And then we always end with three numbers. If we have less than three, we're going to add zero onto the end. If we have more than three, we'll just chop it off. Here are some different encodings for the name Dwayne. Right? Some of these are letters, some of these are numbers, some of them are letters and numbers. And these allow us to compare names and words together so that we can say Dwayne is similar to Twain, but Dwayne is not similar to Frankenstein. So I don't like just taking people's words for things. I don't like assuming that something's going to work. And I've heard so much that phonetic algorithms are the way to go that I really wanted to know if this was indeed the case. And so what I did was I took a search index of books. These had book titles and author names in it. And I phoneticized all the attributes using these algorithms. I created a list of 20 queries, and I ran those queries with real people. Now we're a French company, we're really an international company. We have offices in the US, France, London, and bring people from outside, so I got a lot of rich accents as well, and accordingly a lot of misunderstandings too. And I compared each algorithm along with 11 student distance. And what I asked those people to do was I showed them one result from each algorithm. And I said, just tell me if this result makes sense. You don't need to tell me if this is the best result ever, but if Alexa spoke this result back to you, would you go, okay, I understand how she got there. This is the algorithm performance. And I know you can't read the, the labels at the bottom, but the idea here is that the raw text with 11 scene distance consistently outperformed every algorithm. On the left-hand side, we have where the speech-to-text understood them correctly. In the middle, we have where the speech-to-text misunderstood them. And on the right, we have an average of the two, or rather all combined. And what we see is that when the speech-to-text understood the person correctly, we had a near 100% success rate. The thing that was interesting to me was when the speech-to-text misunderstood them, this is where I thought that the phonetic algorithms would really shine. <coughs> Levenstein distance still outperformed them. And Levenstein distance is something that's built into every single search engine. So you're not really doing anything special there. We had an over 75% accuracy without doing any relevant optimizations. And what we know is that even with textual queries, you're still going to have to do some relevance optimizations. So this is a very good result. We're still working off a very strong base. So we know that those phonetic algorithms aren't something we should really turn to. How do we build relevance for these conversational queries? Let's look at an example. What we know, of course, is that people are more loquacious. They're going to throw words in there that don't really lead to a result and not really providing value for the query. They provide value for our conversation, but not when you're trying to match data. So this is something that people might ask for in a business setting. Find me this week's emails about the latest budget proposal from my team. The first thing we want to do is remove any inconsequential words. In the search engine biz, we call it the stop words. Then what we want to do the way I conceptualize it is you have a giant haystack and you're trying to find a needle in there. 
One way to find a needle is to go through every single piece of hay in that haystack. It's going to take you a long time. The developer in me, though, knows that if you go through smaller and smaller haystacks and go, I know the needle's not in here, I know the needle's not in here, slowly you're going to work into a more manageable haystack where it's going to be a lot easier to find that needle. <laughs> we do that through a few different ways. We're going to filter those results down, we're going to apply personalization, and we're going to take in the overall context. Again, we're trying to slowly, slowly, through these values, build a smaller haystack. The way, some ways to filter, the easiest and one that we're most familiar with is taking in those values from the Alexa NLU. Like I mentioned before, you can pair Amazon, you can combine Amazon.search query with other slot values. So find a podcast, find a television show, find a movie about a dog that escapes and, and finds its way back home. What you can say is, okay, I only want movies about a dog that finds its way back home. You can also do this query scanning in the code. I don't recommend doing this with, with Alexa because you have those slot values. It can also be a bit blunt force. But if you just have a few different things that you're going to filter through, like maybe red, blue, green, then it works well enough. And then finally, you can use built-in search engine tooling. Lots of search engines have this. So Algolia has something called query rules, where we can actually take everything from your data. So let's use books as an example. We can pull in all those books and then pull out all of the authors. So instead of having to create a slot uh, where all the author values are listed, we're going to use that from your data. And you can do this with other search engines as well. Everything I'm going to be talking here is not Algolia specific. It can be used anywhere. This is really valuable. We work with customers who, for example, work in news. And they're not always going to know what the newest things are. Uh, for example, if you had created a public radio skill two months ago, you would have never known that fast food steak dinner was ever going to be something that people would ask for. Um, but you're going to be able to pull that into your search engine index and update it right away. So in our example, I'm looking for emails. I'm not looking for documents. I'm not looking for presentations. I'm looking just for emails. So already I'm reducing the size of that haystack by only looking through emails. Then we're going to pull in personalization and content. I'm sure you've heard this throughout the past couple of days so much that context and really replying to the user in terms of what he or she wants is really important. Just like our normal conversations. If I know you're into baseball and you ask, hey, what were the scores last night? I'm going to give you baseball rather than lacrosse or hockey. So we're going to use the user affinities to further reduce, those, reduce that haystack and filter results. Most search engines can also boost results. So I might generally search for men's clothing, but I want to buy my wife a gift. And so if I search for red sweater uh, for women, I shouldn't see only, or no, rather no results because I only ever search for men's. So we can boost those results that are within that affinity without removing other ones. So we want to return the right result for the right user at the right time. So we can pull in contextual information to, again, filter or boost. So these can think, be things like recent requests. 
what I do with my baseball skills is if you ask for uh, how did the Astros play last night? I'll give you the score. And I go, who do they play tomorrow? I shouldn't need to ask you, well, who do you want? I assume that you want the Astros because that's who you were just speaking about. We can also do time or date. Maybe we're returning different results on a Friday afternoon when I ask for restaurant results than I am going to on Sunday morning. I'm going to return instead restaurants that serve a great brunch. And then finally, number of user requests. Going back to that baseball example again, if I always search for the Astros, you know, on the fifth or sixth time, I don't need to ask you who you want scores for. I can just assume you want the Astros unless you say otherwise. So here we're pulling in the personalization and the context as well. So find me this week's emails. Uh, so we're going to assume that it means before, now, and after Sunday. And then from my team, so I know you're on team number nine, so I'm just going to only show emails, or show the budget proposal emails from team number nine. Again, we're reducing that pay step. Another thing that you really need to keep a close eye on is your analytics. We know that people are going to use different words for different concepts, or for the same concept, rather. Pop, soda, Coke. Uh, the prep goes a long way, but there's no prep and no assumptions that's better than actual data. Synonyms allow a user to search with one term, but match another equivalent term. If you have all of this data in your search engine, you're not going to be able to list out in every single record all of the terms that people are going to use. But in your search engine, if you say, anytime somebody searches for pop, let's go ahead and match on soda instead, you can change that just in one place and match and all the rest. This is very similar to the entity resolution, right? Where you can also do that with slot values. Again, notice that here's where this piece of text correctly understood and a good result and the overall good result. So it's not just when people are asking for the same concept with different terms, it's also when people say something and the piece of text misunderstands them. You know, the classical example is, excuse me while I kiss this guy versus kiss the sky. Uh, you can go in there and you can add that as a synonym and say, anytime somebody searches for kiss this guy, uh, go ahead and match on kiss the sky as well. So here we know that budget and spending are, the, are two of the terms that people use to refer to the same thing. So whether our emails say budget or whether they say spending, we're going to return either. Good, we've reduced the haystack, we've reduced it quite small. We have still though probably more than one result. And we need some way to pick the best result. We're going to sort them and then take what we want. So we're going to sort by what's important. Here we might search by the latest. Otherwise, we might sort by popularity, we might sort by any other things that will tell us which results people want the best. Our general recommendation here is you're going to sort by whatever you would sort by if somebody didn't put in a search query. So let's imagine that you had a search page that somebody landed on and you just saw the first 10 results and no one's put any text in there. What are the most important records that you want back? What are the attributes that apply to that? 
So here we're sorting by the latest because this person specifically asked for the latest. And with voice first, we're often going to need just one result. We often only have room for just one result. So we'll grab just that first item right there. We can also train the user to reduce the haystack for us. The thing is, some terms are better understood by the speech to text than others. This is probably my biggest frustration with some of my voice first devices, where I will say, turn off the lights, it'll be like 9.30, or I don't go to bed that early, it'll be 10.30 at night, and I'll say, turn off the lights, because I'm done reading and I want to go to sleep. And I'll go, okay, turning on all the lights. Uh, one thing I actually discovered recently, I was home knocked up with a flu, and if you say, turn off the effing lights, uh, and actually say the whole thing, it works every single time. <laughs> <laughs> just the, just the <laughs> uh, instead, though, maybe we want to train the user to not, not say that, uh, but say turn out the lights, uh, because we can understand that difference between off and on better if they say turn off the lights. And the thing is, we know that people respond in kind, not just for voice-first devices, but in general. So if somebody asks, turn off the lights, your skills response can say, okay, turning out three lights. All right, uh, Alexa, ask the light skill to turn off the lights. All right, I'll turn off the lights for you. You do that a few times, eventually the person will respond with, Alexa, ask the light skill to turn off the lights. Sometimes though, there are no perfect results. No matter what we can do, either the users uh, or generally the user might ask for something that we just don't have. You've got to ask yourself, do you really want to give the results? Sometimes asking for clarification is better than showing a best guess. And sometimes giving a best guess is better than asking for clarification. You want different answers for different use cases. You have a different level of tolerance for that best guess. The questions that I ask are those like, how easy is it to back out of this choice? Will any damage be done? What happens if we provide the wrong result? The output influences the decision as well. So for example, if I'm a banking skill and I say transfer $5,000 to Mark Twain, and the skill comes back and goes, okay, I just transferred $5,000 to Mark Twain. It, it's hard to back out of that, right? But if I ask, hey, Alexa, what would, uh, ask baseball scores how Chicago did last night. If I come back to you and I say, the Cubs won last night, it's easy enough for you to go, no, 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 I meant the White Sox, right? The only thing lost there was a little bit of time. You don't wanna do that over and over, of course. You wanna pull on that context and personalization, but if you make a mistake here and there, it's okay. The media influences this as well. And the way I think about voice applications is along three different buckets. And this is more of an axis, but still the buckets are useful for me to understand it. We have voice only, voice first, and voice added. Voice only is when voice is the only input and output. Voice first, uh, rather, is when you have some other input or some other output. And then voice added is when voice is added onto it. Voice is generally in a mobile setting. Whereas voice first, voice only. Voice only is going to be these headphones, right? There's no other output, no other input. 
Whereas voice first <coughs> is going to be the echo device, right? You have a light on top, and so it's going to show you some feedback. Or often, you know, the echo show, where you've got that screen right there, or a fire TV. The voice added can better handle those close matches, because generally you have that screen, or you have some other input to fall back on. So if you're on a phone, or if you're on a uh, smartphone, you've got that keyboard in there where if Alexa's just not understanding you, you can fall back and type in the query. Or Alexa can show five results instead of just one. Voice first instead, you've got less precision with, uh, than when you have a display or when you have a keyboard input. This means you have to return just that right information. That's because the user generally only has the patience for maybe one result. You want to easily allow customers to make corrections as well. Because they can't see what's on the screen, you have to be clear what you're doing and make it easy for them to back up. Finally, what we'll do is we'll mark every last, every word that's left optional and then sort by the number of matching words. So again, we know that people will be more wordy when they're searching through voice. And so some the, sometimes they're just going to throw words in there that don't so if I have emails that say latest budget proposal, we're going to rank those higher than if we have something that just says budget proposal or latest proposal. Also, don't forget the voice UX as well. This is one of my favorite uh, quotes from a book called Voice Interaction Design, fantastic book. And what it's describing is in the late 80s, and this organization, I think it was a university, but I don't entirely remember. What they tried to do was they tried to put the email system on telephones. <coughs> and what they did was they put the email system on telephones. Right? They, took, they, took this, they took this and they put all of it on the telephone. And it's just way too much information. It's a different media, it just doesn't work. Think about it, right? If we took all that information and put it on there, this is just the beginning of what it would be, right? Uh, Voice is different. And so with those results, we're going to return just one result, maybe two results, and we're going to limit the kind of information that we're going to provide. So in the situation where our user is asking for emails, what we might return are just the subject lines and then allow the user to ask for the entire body. Or maybe even we want to get multimodal and allow the user to ask for that email to be sent to the phones, right? You can also, if you limit this enough, you can return multiple results. So if you're returning the sender and the time and the subject, you only have so much room there. But if you say, I have an email uh, with a subject of X and one with Y and one with Z, you're, you're getting a little bit more space there and allowing the user to choose. So these are the big takeaways for me in regards to building voice search. Leveraging distance, absolutely. Our, the phonetic algorithms don't waste your time. It's a low-cost way to leveraging distance to improve your relevance. And then further, you're going to use synonyms to further handle the variety of misunderstandings, especially on the speech-to-text side. We want to continually reduce the haystack, use filters with a spoken query, plus the personalization and context. And finally, decide if this calls for a result. 
if it's easy for someone to back out of it or you have another mode like a display to display information, go ahead, give your best guess. If it's difficult or you might <coughs> cause trouble, ask for clarification. So uh, I will turn this over to you for questions if you have any. So you're relying on personalization. Um, how do you choose to store that variable, that, that information? It sounds like you do it on a persistent basis with it, it, within the skill, and how, how are you choosing yeah. to do that? So with personalization, if we think about personalization, personalization broadly, right, uh, you can store it however you want, right? You can store it, some of our customers store it inside the search engine index. So you have a user ID, and we're going to store all, on all the products, all the user IDs for purchase this, this product. And then I can filter off those products whenever you search. Alternatively, in an Alexa skill specifically, if you're building on top of it on AWS, which most people are going to, you just send that off to uh, send that to DynamoDB using persistent storage, and then you can send perhaps category level information instead. Um, are there ways that people develop to know kind of the percentage of their uh, successful searches or what searches tend to be successful? Yeah, that's a good question. The way that we think about it is, well, we have two ways to do it. We have conversion and what we call click tracking, but you could use the click tracking for anything, right? Uh, click tracking could be, Alexa, tell me more about that. Uh, conversion tracking is, is exactly what it sounds like. They achieve a successful result. We also have what, I always blink on the term, but we also have essentially when somebody goes back and changes the query. So if you see someone making a query quickly after a previous one, you can understand that they didn't get what they were looking for. Google, Google in fact, uses this, uh, or at least they did a one point for their algorithm, where if you search for something and then you go to a page and then you quickly go back to Google, Google assumes that the page that you went to wasn't high quality and it's not going to rank it as high. Does that feed some sort of uh, algorithm that adjusts the results in the future? It can, right? It, it's ultimately up to you, and it depends on the search engine technology that you're using. Uh, you might decide to, to feed that back. You might decide just to use it uh, for your own analytic data to, to transform the records that people are searching on. Okay. Some other questions that uh, you might ask as well is how do you optimize your data? How are you going to present the weights? And how much weight are you going to apply for personalization as well? These are things that you might want to go into the search engine building process to <coughs> use a, a provider like Algolia and you build your own search engine. These are all things that you probably want to take into account as well. So uh, obviously I'll be around. If you have any questions, uh, don't, oh, For sure, for sure, absolutely. Uh, so the interaction model, if you, build, if you can build that into the interaction model, it's going to bias the speech recognition and the speech to text. So if you have some inkling of what people are going to say, you can build that in. But beyond that, that's where something like a search really comes into it as well. And in fact, this, 
this presentation was billed as search, but I think about search a lot more broadly. I refer to it as content sourcing. And so the content that you might need to source is whether someone got the right answer or the wrong answer. So if somebody responds to a trivia question of, uh, what did Trump serve the Clemson football team? Uh, and they, they respond with Wendy's, Burger King, and pizza with fries. Uh, if the right result was fast food, you still, like that's still the right answer. You don't want to just go, no, sorry, I was looking for fast food, that's going to be a bad experience. Yeah. You're not necessarily going to be able to build all of those into the interaction schema, but if you have that in a search engine and you can do those partial matching, you can go, okay, well, Wendy's and Burger King is a close enough answer. You don't need to say pizza as well. So, yeah, having the same question basically the idea in the context of an Alexa skill for voice search you're you're talking about maybe uh, using amazon.search query specifically yeah. so that then you get the full user utterance mm -hmm. so that you can parse it and apply the techniques that you're describing in order to get more relevant answers mm -hmm. but if you don't use amazon.search query then you don't get the full user utterance and so you don't have the ability to apply the tools and if you use Amazon to search query, then you have to have a carrier phrase. So then you're asking the user to say a specific thing a specific way. Yeah, so uh, going back to what I mentioned early on, with the Amazon.search query, you do have to have the carrier phrase, but you can think about that very broadly, right? It doesn't have to just be, you have to say find or you have to say search. You can also say, what do you know about? Tell me about. And so that kind of thing, it's not providing value to finding results anyway. So that kind of thing where you can provide a lot of different options, and then anything that comes after it, you're going to be able to send off to the search. And then beyond that as well, if you, for whatever reason, don't want to use Amazon.search query, which also uh, I mentioned as well with the uh, slot elicitation, it doesn't need a carrier phrase in that case. So if um, you can have it where you go, well, what are you looking for? And then they don't need a carrier phrase. You can also send those slot values well as well. Any slot values that you have, you can send along because you might not have in your database the exact match from slot value to uh, item in your database. And we know that Alexa, the Alexa platform, isn't going to return just the slot values that you recommend, even if it's biased towards that. So you can still use it with the slot values outside of search query. There's a question in the back. Cool, so uh, my email is dustin.algolia.com. Obviously, I'll be around as well. If you have any questions on search, on content discovery, or building Alexa skills, uh, let me know. Cool. Thanks so much. Great. Thank you. If you liked that episode, go ahead and give us some feedback. We have partnered with SurveyLine to allow anybody to give us a survey. All you've got to say to your Alexa devices is, Alexa, enable SurveyLine. And when you're prompted for the code to the survey, say Voice First Podcast. Looks like this one already activated. Or say help. Voice First Podcast. Congrats on making it this far. Voice First wants to hear from you so we can make the show better. This survey has four questions. Question number one. Alexa, stop. To use app 
Goodbye. So if you want to hear those questions, it's only four questions long. Give us some feedback so we can improve the show. We would love to hear from you and uh, keep it voice first. Thank you.